Office memorandum. Walter Neff to Barton Keyes, claims manager. Los Angeles, July 16th, 1938. Dear Keyes. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we watched... Double Indemnity, which was the third film in the 1944 awards. Is that right? I think that's right, which is kind of crazy. This is the thing about five movies is I have not liked every movie that we watched because Going My Way wasn't very good. But like, there's nothing I've sat through and gone, why did they make us watch this? (laughs) Yes. And this is no exception, because it's, I don't know, it's a pretty weird movie in some ways, but the dialogue is incredible. Edward G. Robinson, as my wife said, is why they invented the Best Supporting Actor nomination. Uh, Seriously, he's phenomenal in this. Yeah. I don't even know that I would say that it's weird, except for this light little twist in it, because it's really just an absolute bog-standard noir thriller. The twist being that the guy who is suckered by the femme fatale is an insurance salesman rather than a private detective. (laughs) Yeah, that's the biggest twist. And I think when I say it's weird, I just mean it is bog standard noir, but in being bog standard noir, it is extremely no one talks like this. Oh, yeah. No one on earth in all of history has ever talked like this. That's not a problem. It's just a vibe. It is definitely a vibe. The first back and forth that Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck have in this film, where he goes to her house, it goes on for six exchanges too long. (laughs) For sure. But in the best way? Yeah. If I was mad at it, I would be mad at Edward G. Robinson, who has the most ridiculous lines in this movie. But every time I'm like, again, again, say a ridiculous thing another time. I love it. (laughs) All of his dialogue, like, God, what's the one exit line? Just, I just want to say, it's not that you're smart, it's just that you're tall. And then leaves. Yes. And that's one of the most reasonable things he says through the movie. I suppose we should get to the plot, because like you say, it's bog-standard noir, and you're here for the lighting, and you're here for the dialogue. Fred McMurray plays an insurance salesman rather than a private detective, as you'd expect. We get this sort of flash-forward, flashback structure. There's sort of a framing period where he sits down, drives around crazily, crashes outside of this building, wanders inside, and starts dictating a confession to Barton Keyes, which is Edward G. Robinson's character, who's his boss. And then the entire story is told in flashback with McMurray doing occasional extremely purple narration. Oh, extremely. If I have one criticism of this film, it is that... Fred McMurray is doing a really great vocal performance in this film that does not line up with his face 90% of the time. Yes. I mean, all of his flirting with Barbara Stanwyck is like, boy, if you don't look like Gary Cooper, any woman on earth would slap you for saying that. And sir, you're handsome, but you don't look like Gary Cooper. (laughs) 
Bogart. I mean, anyone. Like, just give me, give me a, it's gotta be a top five, is I think what I'm saying. (laughs) Bogart is, like, the noir one, but you just, you have to look more handsome than he looks to try and pull off some of the lines he's trying to flirt with. Mm. It works partially because... You are just so instantly locked into like, okay, so Barbara Stanwyck's just using this guy to try and murder her husband, right? In fact, even within the plot, he's like, oh, so you're just using me to murder your husband in like five minutes. But my favorite part of it is that he basically presents to her that this has happened to him more than once. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm an insurance salesman, baby. You think I don't get this all the time? (laughs) And then after initially going, well, I'm not going to fall for this, she comes over and is like, would it change your mind if we made out? And he's like, you know what? As it turns out, yes. Here's how you do the perfect murder. (laughs) We're going to wait till your husband goes off in a train on a college reunion. I'm going to hide in the back seat. Then I'm going to break his neck. We're going to have me dressed up as him so that I get on the train with a bunch of witnesses that think that I'm him. Then I'm going to jump off the back of the train and meet up with you. And then we're just going to leave his body on the tracks so it looks like an accident, though no one will be able to figure out what the hell the accident was, is kind of the main problem with this plan. (laughs) Then it goes off with about three hitches. All of which seemed really obvious to me when it was happening. Not the least of which was obviously they're going to investigate this because she has, it's literally called a double indemnity clause in the insurance that he sold to her. So they're going to investigate the hell out of this because otherwise it pays double what the life insurance policy is worth. And she just took it out. And he doesn't look anything like her husband. Yeah. I mean, he has his back turned, but he's about a foot taller than everyone in this film. (laughs) The excuse is that he has been injured and has a cast. It's a pieces of flair thing where, like, he takes the crutches and has the limp of having hurt his leg. And I think the idea is most people would just go, oh, yeah, 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 there was a guy with a cast. That must have been him. Sure. But the other problem is, as he's trying to get off the back of the train, there's a guy back there. And he has to keep his back turned to him super duper awkwardly and make up an excuse about his cigarette case being back in the train before he jumps. And that turns out to be kind of a big deal. But mostly then you're just sort of in a psychological thriller for about an hour of like, who's going to break when? How is this story going to fall apart? Because Walter Neff, Fred McMurray's character, in his incredibly purple narration goes like, I was taken by a thought, reached up my back like I was just being grabbed by the grave. And it told me that this was all going to go horribly wrong. And you're like, I mean, yeah, my man. Like... <laughs> Have you seen the lighting in the movie you're in? Yeah. (laughs) Which is so heavy-handed, even at the very beginning. And then he gets involved with the guy he murdered's daughter, Barbara Stanwyck's stepdaughter, who was played by Jean Heather, who was the 18-year-old runaway girl in Going My Way, and falls for her? 
He has a thing where he says that the only time that he feels any kind of peace is when he's with her. But it's kind of weird that he's hanging out with her a whole bunch and is like, yeah, this makes me feel better. And that was the point where I went, he's not the hero of this film. He's a bad person. Yeah. (laughs) He'd already killed a man. (laughs) And that was the point where I went, I don't think he's a very nice guy. (laughs) I mean, but I... I actually totally agree with you, because I sort of felt the same way. The opening narration sort of positions him as a good guy who got in over his head. And that is around the point where you're like, wait a second, he's actually the driving force of everything terrible in this movie. Like, Barbara Stanwyck was gonna murder her husband, but and not that this is an excuse for murder, her husband did seem like an asshole. Yeah. It sort of seemed like, not that everything would have worked out just fine without him, but very clearly, at least, he could have walked away, because he does initially. And he does in a way where Barbara Stanwyck is like, I guess I'm just going to go on being married to my shitty husband. And instead of going, yeah, I guess you are, he goes, okay, here's how you do the perfect crime. And as you say, he does start getting nebulously romantically involved with her stepdaughter in this way where it's like, is that going to be the reveal? And it turns out there is no reveal, but it definitely feels like, oh, the stepdaughter and Barbara Stanwyck are in it together and they conned him and that's the twist in Act 3. Instead, the stepdaughter is just good and pure and represents the last of his inherent morality that he's attracted to her, which is complicated and weird. As it all starts to go wrong in Act 3, the way he shows he's still a good guy question mark is that the stepdaughter's boyfriend has been manipulated by Barbara Stanwyck into breaking up with the stepdaughter and Fred McMurray's like, hey, you should go call the stepdaughter because she's still in love with you and you guys can turn out all right. And like, one, can they? Because <laughs> both of them are pretty deeply involved in this double murder by the end of the movie thing, too. And two, is that a good thing? I, Because the boyfriend seems like an asshole. Yeah, I mean, he dumped Lola to date her stepmom, so... Yeah. Which she knows. It's not like she's unaware of the fact that her ex-boyfriend is now banging her stepmom, whose husband, her dad, just died. I don't think that she's going to be really eager to get back together with this dickhead. (laughs) Right. It sort of seems like there was a studio note that Walter Neff cannot end the movie too evil and unsympathetic. And so we have to give him something sympathetic to do. And that was the best they could come up with from like the characters yet remaining on the board, you know? But it mostly just plays weird and as kind of a distraction from what you actually care about, which is the relationship between him and Barbara Stanwyck, and more importantly, the relationship between him and his boss, Edward G. Robinson. Who is the MVP of this film and the best thing in it. I mean, here's the thing. I actually like this movie a lot. I just, by the standards that I have for Academy Award-nominated films... And perhaps it is because this style has been done to death and into the ground 
I don't want to be a genre snob, but like it's very genre y. <laughs> it's super genre y. I want to position this as a compliment, but it's also, I think, why we're blazing through this. I could look away from this movie and come back five minutes later and know what was going on. Which is a thing I think even good movies we've watched have not been able to accomplish thus far. This is kind of a popcorn movie. I actually paused it halfway through to make popcorn. (laughs) In the sense that it goes down easy and it's kind of disposable and it's kind of empty calories. There's not really a lot going on here. Right. Everybody's doing good work. And, like, aesthetically, this movie is great, but the plot is, like, a guy gets involved with a femme fatale, they murder her husband, and that goes about as well as you'd think. Like, in terms of the actual events of the film, there's no twist whatsoever on guy meets hot lady, does a bad murder, it goes wrong. I think really what it is is it's not even the best noir film I've ever seen. It is absolutely beat for beat what you would expect from this plot. And it's enjoyable, absolutely. But whether that was the case at the time or not, it hasn't stood the screen test of time because I know everything that's going to happen in this film at this point. (laughs) Yeah, this was what I was expecting It Happened One Night to do, which is that essentially by being the blueprint for a lot of stuff it ends up feeling weirdly like a knockoff because it doesn't actually move the ball forward all that much because it has to invent the ball in a lot of ways. And, like, we've seen noirs before. Like, this comes after Maltese Falcon, obviously. Which is way more interesting. I think so, but it's also a way messier movie than this. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) On paper... This movie does everything right, and in doing everything right, it never actually grabs your attention. It is just correct. Yes. As a result, you kind of go, oh, okay, I guess the movie's over now. And I'm having a little trouble grabbing specifics, having watched this movie, I don't know, three days ago. Not because the movie wasn't good, but because it kind of has that law and order marathon sense of, oh, I'll pick it up from context clues. Like, your brain doesn't really feel the need to remember all of this. Right. There's good stuff in here. Like, the one thing my brain did clearly remember is just, like, Edward G. Robinson rules in this movie. And, like, we keep saying that and then never saying why. It's... Just because he's so fun every time on screen, and he's kind of the one weird thing about this movie, is that the ever-present threat of justice is a kind of portly boss who's an insurance claims guy. Yeah, he's a claims investigator. Right, who just keeps going like, something feels off, something feels off. I can feel it in my gut. This is such a weird threat. Just Edward G. Robinson going like, I don't know, man, I'm telling you. Well, he says, I've had this little guy who lives inside me my whole life. His gut instinct. But he describes it as a little guy who lives inside him who has never been wrong. Yeah. And he gives some incredible monologues that really make being an insurance claims adjuster seem to be 
the most dangerous and sexy job you can imagine and it is really not (laughs) no my favorite thing is his character introduction scene is catching a guy who's trying to collect on his car insurance who burned out his car and said it was an accident and he's caught the guy and the guy like clearly needed the money yeah you're kind of like what a dick yeah but he's like so charming in being a dick When he catches the guy and the guy gets nervous and has the guy sign the piece of paper, he goes, there you go. Easy as that. You're an honest man again. Well, you can leave now. Yep. (laughs) And then instructs him how doors work when he kind of tries to fight back a little bit to get him to leave. And the guy seems honestly very pleased to have been told how a door works. He's great. And he does, in fact, feel kind of threatening simply because you do go, well, he's going to figure it out. Like, you fucking idiot, why did you try this? He's going to figure this out. There is a brief moment where I thought, well, he's going to get away with this because he knows this guy and has known this guy so long that he formed this plan around his partner's knowledge, right? And his approach to investigating. But in the end missed a whole lot of shit (laughs) yeah it's great because he does keep walking right up to it like he basically in the middle of act two goes obviously there has to be some kind of an accomplice and she has to have figured out some way to have gotten the husband to sign this thing and then looks at fred mcmurray for a second and goes like Well, no, that can't be it, because then you'd be in on it. Right. Doesn't say that out loud, but just goes, oh, now the problem with that theory is that, like, you would be guilty. So, damn, what's the missing piece here? And it turns out that, yeah, he was guilty. Also, just Edward G. Morrow is generally threatening, which is quite an accomplishment, because he is a full foot shorter than Fred McMurray. I mean, at least a foot. Yeah. I mean, he is... Not particularly physically intimidating, but he's got the, like, 1940s boss chewing on a cigar, yelling at everybody in the office energy that makes him kind of threatening. Yes. And I hated him in Five Star Final, but I think that's because I hated Five Star Final. Yeah. He was playing the right archetype in Five Star Final, where he was the newspaper editor who's like, get me the scoop on blah blah blah. And in this, he is basically playing a brother archetype of that. (laughs) Who happens to be an insurance adjuster. It works. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing about Five Star Final is that it kept going like, there's this core thing to you that Edward G. Robinson would actually be terrible at playing, where people would just come up to him and go like, yeah, but you've got a heart of gold. You're a good guy. You don't want to have this job. And in this one, he's like, this is the only job I can do. I'm really good at it. I have to embrace being really good at it, even though it makes me miserable and I hate it. That's actually a way better energy for him. Yes. It's the same basic archetype he's playing, but there's just this sort of twist of I hate being right to it that really makes it come alive. Yes. Really, in that last scene, it kind of becomes his movie. Oh, yeah. Because by then, Neff has totally lost the plot. He 
figures out through the stepdaughter that Barbara Stanwyck has been sneaking around with the stepdaughter's boyfriend, and then goes to her house to question mark, question mark, question mark, tell her he's gonna turn her in? Tell her she's getting turned in so that she can shoot him, which she does, but then she doesn't shoot him a second time and says, actually, I love you. And he goes, huh, and then shoots her and kills her because he's lost it. Like, it's what? (laughs) Yeah, it's not entirely clear what his plan was at that point. And perhaps it was just pure desperation. Yeah, I guess. But then we sort of catch up with the initial scene and Keys, Edward G. Robinson's character, has been there listening to him for a while. And Fred McMurray, who seemingly has completely lost it at this point, is like, well, I'm going to flee to Mexico now. Okay, but wait, why didn't you just do that initially? (laughs) Well, because he needed to leave the dictaphone recording for his pal, so his pal did not know. (laughs) But he'd figured it out. I guess. It feels like once somebody was like, where's Neff? And they were like, well, he's been out for like a week and a half. Somebody says they've seen him in Mexico. He'd be like, oh, I guess I know exactly what happened with Barbara Stanwyck now. Yes. (laughs) Whatever. I guess, I guess he's leaving the dictaphone recording so that the stepdaughter's boyfriend doesn't get blamed because Keys is kind of leaning toward blaming him, I guess. Um, but mostly he's leaving the dictaphone message so that you can have that amazing shot of the insurance office at the start of the movie. And so that Keys can find him at the end and be there when he collapses and... Well, and so you can have his incredibly purple narration throughout the whole thing. Yeah, but it, basically he's like, I'm gonna flee to Mexico, just let me go. And Edward G. Robinson is like, my man, you are not gonna make it to the elevator. <laughs> He does. And he does not. No. And then they've had this bit of business where Neff keeps lighting his boss's cigars for him through the whole movie because he can't find a light. And now finally, Neff can't find a light. And Edward G. Robinson takes out a match from Neff and lights it and lights his cigarette as they wait for the cops to show up and... Eventually, it's implied, give Fred McMurray the chair, like, kill kill him? I'm pretty sure he dies. Does he? It's kind of ambiguous. Like, he's screwed either way. By Hayes Code standards, dying counts as punishment for murder or adultery. Yeah. Which he committed both of. That's on the up and up as far as they're concerned. Yeah. (laughs) But- It's one of the few movies that I'm going to recommend that you watch and not give that high of a score. (laughs) I would agree with that completely. Like, I had the same thought of, specifically in a one-two punch with Gaslight. Oh, this is a way easier and more enjoyable watch, and this is definitely a worse movie than Gaslight. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed watching this more than I enjoyed Gaslight. But that's a better movie. Yeah, I mean, Gaslight made me feel sick to my stomach a number of times. And this didn't, so there was that, which is not anything against Gaslight. It's just a really tough to watch movie. Boy, this made 84 in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions list. And at this point, I have to ask, has anyone at AFI ever been in a healthy relationship? Because every (laughs) single one, it seems like, 
of their greatest romances in film history are like women who go out loud. I've never loved you. There is absolutely nothing here. We just kind of made eyes at each other one time. And they're like, love it. Number 83. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's why it's passions and not... uh, Romances? Yeah. Love? I, I don't know. There's a lot of that on this list, actually. But as far as scoring this film, I guess, like, seven? Yeah, I was willing to go as high as eight, just because I think this is a really well-directed movie, but I think it's just kind of slight. But I accept seven. Part of it being kind of slight is that I'm not super-duper attached to going, like, it must be this number. I will fight for it, you know? It's a cupcake movie. Yeah. Uh, which is a weird thing to say about a movie with, like, incredibly stark noir lighting about a woman and an insurance salesman murdering the woman's husband. But, like, yeah, it just kind of goes down smooth and then it's done. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, it's dark, but it's a fun movie to watch because you kind of know what the beats are going to be. And it's really just about this very noir, very rapid-fire dialogue that is the way that no one in the world talks. Yeah. Are there better movies where you can get that same experience? Absolutely. But this was totally fine. (laughs) Yeah, it's totally fine. The one thing I will say for it, and we really can't know right now, but my wife, Nikki, was saying as we watched it, that it was sort of the first movie she was really sad we couldn't watch on the big screen that she's watched with me for Screen Test of Time. Mm. And I do wonder how much my opinion of this movie would change if it was viable to go see it in a theater right now. Because there's so many establishing shots in this movie that because I'm watching it on a TV, I go, oh, that's a really pretty establishing shot. Instead of going like, holy shit, this is amazing, which is what I feel like a ton of that could be, and could kind of buoy this movie in a way where, like, the plot's still gonna be almost a shaggy dog story, like, it comes remarkably close to a shaggy dog story for a film that starts and ends with our lead bleeding to death. (laughs) I think just sort of the look of this film might buoy it up a point or two if you were watching it as it was meant to be seen double indemnity there i finally remembered to say it the correct way at the end of the episode i mean i think it's a beautifully shot film it's a beautifully shot film i think everyone is giving the correct performance it's weird to say because i don't know if all of the performances work with the intervening almost 80 years of film history, Barbara Stanwyck's playing super broad, but she's also kind of one of the establishing figures of that character archetype. So she kind of has to. Yeah. The plot kind of demands 
that she be a femme fatale that you can kind of read pretty quickly because our lead reads her really quickly. Yes. And so I don't think it's a problem with the performance and I don't even think it's a problem with the direction because I think it was a correct directing choice to have her come off as kind of cheap and phony. Yeah. By comparison, if you look at Mary Astor in The Maltese Falcon, who is this very complicated character who has three different identities by the time we get to the end of the film and who seems to have an inner life beyond just, I want to murder my husband and get money. Yeah. (laughs) She's much more interesting, but she is not archetypal at all. You end up finding things that are interesting about Mrs. Diedrichsen, about Barbara Stanwyck's character, because she doesn't really make any sense because she's so archetypical. (laughs) It's kind of like Iago in Shakespeare, Where you're like, you're given so little information on her, you kind of have to wonder what her whole deal is, because no one will just tell you. And when they tell you, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. You did all of this because, like, you wanted a promotion, like you murdered 13 people. But in the same way on this one, you don't really get anything on her besides, like, I don't know, I don't like my husband very much and I would like his money. This seems like you could have done it a different way. This seems weird. In that last scene, does she mean it when she says she's in love with him? Is she playing him still? And it doesn't work. I... And, like, I think you're kind of supposed to not know. Especially because she says, I never loved you until I shot you the first time and then couldn't shoot you again. Right. Uh, What? It's such a bad argument, it, like, wraps back around to you going, like, I guess that must be true, because otherwise, why would- (laughs) Right, because no one would fucking say that. (laughs) Right. Like, (laughs) that's sort of her whole character in Microcosm. Is this confusing intentionally as a choice, or is this confusing because the movie doesn't think I'm gonna look that hard at this, or is this confusing because I'm missing something? (laughs) Like, she's just supposed to be evil, and I'm paying too much attention. I don't really know. And I, again, think that ends up playing sort of to the movie's benefit, because you have a lot of free time, because this movie isn't all that complex, and you end up going, so, like, what's her whole deal? A lot. And the fact that there's no easy answer to that kind of makes the movie a little bit more interesting than it actually is. I think really what it does is it makes her more interesting than she actually is because it is only at the end where I really came to realize that, no, she's just really conniving. There's no there there. Yeah. And not terribly smart. No. You know, the fact that she was trying on the morning hat before the guy even got killed, the fact that she had already probably killed Lola's mother in order to marry Lola's father... (laughs) I mean... Yeah, you get the sense that she's in the bubble from 30 Rock, but for murdering people. Like, if she was less hot, people would have caught her already. (laughs) And so she just thinks it's really easy to murder people. Right. That's weird. So is there something else going on here? It's the same thing with the stepdaughter. She shows up in his car and goes like, gee, mister, I need a ride. And you're like, boy, she must be playing him. Like, there must be some deeper game at work here. And then you get to the end of the movie and you're like, I guess she just needed a ride? Well, she also wanted to talk to him about the situation. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, seven. Seven and you should watch this movie so that you 
two can go, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely the kind of movie that is just enjoyable and fun and will not challenge you in any way and looks stunning. I mean, again, the cinematography is fantastic, but it is, as far as being a movie that I would nominate for best picture, eh, probably not. Is it better than going my way? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm fine with it being nominated for Best Picture, but I think it's that movie that I would be happy specifically got nominated, you know? Yes. Oh, I'm glad that the Academy picked a noir, and, like, that's a good one to pick. Yeah. But it's not going to win, and it shouldn't. No. So for next week, we are watching... Since You Went Away. The Return of Claudette Colbert. And the Return of Shirley Temple, right? We've had a Shirley Temple already. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was. I don't think we have had any movies with Shirley Temple yet. Huh. Okay. Well, then, the the beginning of Shirley Temple. Uh, Not the beginning of her career. Right. Of her on this podcast. Yes. She actually retires in six years. (laughs) (laughs) from the release of this film jesus but yeah i'm just excited to see claudette colbert again because she has not been in an oscar nominated film for a really long time or a best picture nominated film anyway yeah god i really hadn't thought about that either we've had such a weird schedule because of the world that like kind of my timeline of the podcast is a little bit thrown off but yeah it's been a minute yep so tune in next week to see if her return is something to celebrate (laughs) and until then this was a movie absolutely like that's why we're saying watch it even though we're only giving it a seven but on the this was a movie scale it's like a 10 in terms of this was a film you could go see it in a theater I mean, not right now, but like one could theoretically in the history of mankind (laughs) do that and should because it's a movie. Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. The end. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye, baby.